As I have said before, sometimes creativity and creative people are all around and we overlook them. I don't want to say they are right under our noses, but... The other day I realized that someone I email every week or so is someone I haven't interviewed yet. And I'm still not sure why that's the case and what my holdup was. Like our last guest, today's guest is a visual artist, but I also learned he is branching out into other things. Today, we talk with Brad Wilson of Cleveland, Tennessee, about art, teaching, and being a first-time novelist on Dialogues with Creators. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. Well, thank you, Barbara. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. Is it, should I call you Bradley or Brad? Either's fine. Most people call me Bradley, but I go by both. Oh, okay. I'll be more. If you're used to Brad, that's fine. <laughs> um, so we, uh, before we started, we were talking about dogs. So I want to learn more about your dogs as we get into knowing you. You say that you and your wife have a rescue sanctuary for dogs kind of thing? Uh, yeah, we started you know, kind of unknowingly started this in 2002 when my wife uh, was on her way to work and uh, there was a little Yorkie running alongside the highway. And so she oh. stopped, rescued it and took it to a vet. There was no chip and uh, he was Max and we ended up having him until, I don't know, maybe 16 or 17 years. He died in, I think, oh. 27. And, um, but he was such a good boy. But since then, we've kind of, all our dogs are pretty small, so we don't do okay. the, the 17. We have 17 total, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, mm -hmm. but, uh, but they're all, they're all pretty small. Most of them are under 10 pounds, and most of them are seniors, and they just sleep all the time. Mm -hmm. So, so in, it, like, in, as far as like the expenses, the biggest expense is obviously vet care. They don't even eat that much, really. I mean, we spend under 150 a, a month on food for them. But it's the vet thing that's kind of the big expense. But we've got this wonderful vet who knows our situation. And she she really gives us a, she makes it this doable for us as far as medical expenses. Okay. Do you live in the country? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's yes. that one, yeah. Yeah, I live I live right outside of Cleveland in Charleston, Tennessee, which is still in Brown County. And it's um, I think it's a population of 650. And um, my there is a high school here and we live kind of right behind the high school. And it's the high school that my wife is a teacher at. So but it sounds like it is out in the country. But, you know, it sounds like a, a school being nearby that it wouldn't. But it, they built the school in the middle of a field um, 20 years ago. So. Okay. And so that's why we're hearing puppies in the back. <laughs> so if you hear, if you hear doggy barks, it's not uh, a mistake <laughs> it's because they have a 17 dog. You said, okay, that's a lot of dogs. And do you ever list track of their names? Well, we have in the kitchen, we painted our kitchen with that paint where you can write on it with chalk. Okay. And so we, it's kind of, we, <laughs> So we have their names all listed down, but, you know, if we acquire a, a new animal or if one passes, you know, that's kind of sad. We wipe their name off the wall and then we mm. add a new dog as they come in. So, but that we have to have that, or sometimes I really can't, even if I'm trying to consciously list all their names, I'll forget one or two. Sure. So where do you get them from? Uh, different places. Uh, Recently, we've gotten a lot from the McMinn County, or not a lot, but several from the McMinn County Animal Shelter and then the SPCA here in Bradley County. Uh, and then we used to, years and years ago, foster for dogs. And uh, we still have some, some groups and some uh, foster people that we um, know, and you know, they'll contact us if they got a situation that they think uh, an animal would, would work well with us and what we've got what we've got going did uh you get them when they're older yeah usually okay yeah usually i mean i would say at the youngest seven eight nine with like 10 and then we've got several that are 
15, 16, and 17. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, you said your Yorkie lived 17 years, and it must have been pretty young when you got it. Uh, he must have been, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when you take them to the vet for the first time. I think they just, if they don't know, they just, and it's an adult, and their teeth are clean and their eyes are clear, they say it's two years old. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I have big dogs, but uh, they're not super big, but they're, one is over 70 pounds and the other one's about 55 to 60. So, um, so little, little dogs are, are interesting to me, but I'm not, I don't know that I'd ever own one. <laughs> little ones. Yeah. I kind of like the big ones, although the big ones can, can be rough to deal with um, as I had an experience today, as I told you about. Well, anyway, uh, we didn't really get on to your talk about dogs, but um, my goal here is to ask a few questions and let you talk. Uh, and uh, so I'll keep in the background because you have a lot to say. Tell us about your start as a visual artist. Sure. I was a high school um, freshman. And I had had an art teacher that uh, Lolly Durant, who's a Chattanooga uh, artist, and it's kind of she was my eighth grade art teacher, and we even teach together now at Lee University. We're both in the art right there, so that's kind of neat how that has happened. But uh, so I had her, which in middle school art, which you know you can't, you do what you can, you know, you get the kids maybe whatever for six weeks or nine weeks or whatever it is. And then I had uh, a high school art teacher, Bud Ellis, who was the man who kind of started the carousel at uh, Coolidge Park. He was the woodcarver. Yeah. Uh, When I was in high school, he would be, he started, he would get these old carousel horses and repair them and fix them up. Mm -hmm. And he modeled this kind of, you know, this, this life of a creator, which is something I had never seen, you know, he, he, you know, he taught, but he also would work in front of us at school. And I thought that for me, I want to, and I was not a good, I was not particularly uh, good in academics. And uh, so, but I really clicked with his class because it was making stuff and it was hands-on. And Mm -hmm. then once I graduated, I decided um, I, I really never wanted a career in anything like i knew i was going to have a job but the idea of a career just has never been appealing to me um so i studied i studied painting which is of course you know not one of the fields that you can go out and get a high paying job in immediately after graduation so i went to graduate school and then i studied with a great painter jerry allen there at the university of mississippi and then it was there that, that they uh, offered me a teaching assistantship. And so I got to do that. And I thought, well, I like teaching and I can't really think of anything else I would want to do. So uh, I graduated, moved to Colorado for a year and I've got somehow, I've just kind of landed this part-time job at a community college outside of Denver and was there for a year. And then eventually wound up in Alabama teaching at a community college, teaching art and, um, but this whole time of, you know, teaching and, and the, the creating were always kind of, I, I, I definitely had to have the art making part. So it's one thing, you know, not that I've been especially, you know, like um, successful by whatever standards, but uh, I, I have been able to maintain kind of a creative life through, throughout my <laughs> adult years. So I'm, I think that's, uh, that's something that I wanted from the get-go. So I knew I wanted a creative life. I knew I didn't want kind of a traditional life, like I didn't want a career. I knew pretty early on in my early 20s I didn't want children. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing wrong with children. Uh, and I'd been around children. My sisters, who are older, had children, and I got to be around them when they were babies. And so it was just, I just kind of wanted something, I don't know, I probably would just be ill-suited in any other type of job because I, I don't, you know, I think maybe even with teaching, I love teaching and I love working with students that you probably know better than anybody. When it comes to like that other side, kind of like the 
administrative tasks and things like that. I am not always on top of the ball with that stuff. And it's not because, you know, I'm trying to be a pain uh, to my supervisors. It's just my brain. <laughs> I'm just wired in a way where I don't even think, you know, I don't know. It just doesn't. And I, I say that it is kind of an excuse and it's, I don't mean it as an excuse, but uh, that is one of my areas that are probably a little bit more challenging for me is, is anything in the realm of the practical. So, um, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting viewpoint. I don't, well, there's practical and then there's practical. Um, some of the stuff that we have to do administratively is just stuff we have to do administratively. It's practical value. Well, I shouldn't say too much. I might get in trouble, but <laughs> it's immediate practical value is, is sometimes maybe an enigma. <laughs> I mean, I know it has some value some somewhere down the line, but, um, but yeah, I know you're not the only um, professor I've worked with, though, that had, who was very creative and could do amazing things artistically, who just didn't get into the, the that kind of, you know, administrative stuff. I've worked with other people like that, and um, it's, I understand. I understand it. It's just we're all kind of wired a little differently in how we see things, which is kind of where I wanted to go with this. So you, um, you were in Alabama teaching, and then how long were you there? I was in Alabama for nine years. Uh, oh. I met my wife there. She was a teacher, or she was she was in college to be a teacher, uh, to be an art teacher, and then uh, I eventually, when I was in Alabama, so I was teaching again part time at like two different universities, mm-hmm. community college and one university, and then I landed a job in teaching public school art at an elementary school, but I had to. Uh, even though I had a master's degree, I had to go back and take some some more courses and take the praxis and do all the get all the uh, requirements and uh, get all the credentials, I guess, for uh, being able to teach, being a certified. Mm-hmm. And I did that for three years and I made probably all the mistakes. I was probably not a great uh, public school teacher. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I still have students that I'm friends with, like from, this was 20 some years ago. So I still have students from then that, you know, they're now in their thirties, I guess, and, or maybe even a little older, but, um, well, no, they wouldn't be older, but, uh, yeah, I just don't think that I was, I just wasn't really good at that. I love teaching and I, I love teaching college students and I love teaching, uh, my adult students that I teach mm-hmm. at the creative arts guild. And then I also teach at, uh, a, john campbell folk school in brasstown north carolina mm-hmm. which is an incredible place to take a class or to teach a class yeah we're going to get into that a little bit because i'm fascinated with that place um i remember you sent me a card a while back with one of your paintings on it i think it was like a king a painting a king was the king was kind of a gold company. yeah I remember that, yeah. So is that something as far as making cards or making stationery or posters or something that you do? No, I have only done I've only done that once. Okay. And, and with one of my pieces of art that was with my dog. Uh, uh but the the cards that I had sent you, I had a friend who had made those for me. And I think specifically because this friend wanted like like receiving letters and stuff. So mm-hmm. I in the mail. So um so I and, and I kind of did that for a while. I was uh, I would you know write one letter a week to send to friends and people. You know I thought that would just be a good practice to maintain. Yeah, it is. It's fallen by the the wayside in recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to to start that back up. So I have an I have a one and only Bradley Wilson card. Yeah, you better hang on to it. So. I yeah I will. Now that I know I kept it. I kept it because um, I knew it had to be something unusual um okay so that's uh, we're gonna make a card of my art that is not the image i would have chosen <laughs> <laughs> so but you gave it to him right to do that with it oh yeah well actually the guy that did that he was my um the he i, I showed a gallery in nashville and he's the gallery mm-hmm. owner 
Um, and we're also, and we're also friends, and he he's just into that kind of stuff, corresponding, you know, with letters and cards, and and it's a great thing. <laughs> I just it's one of those things that yeah you want to do and you really intend to do, but it's just it's one of those the first things you know those things that go when you get kind of busy. Excuse me. Okay. <laughs> oh. Get that out of my system. Mm. Okay. Um, so, if um, I'm, I went to your gallery on your website, I, I assume that's not all your paintings, though. Is it? Is it uh, what? Is it Bradley Wilson paintings? I think What's, so. Okay. Yeah. So I've got I've got a website. I also have another website that's. I'm on, but it's not, I haven't really told, I didn't know what, if you had found this new website that I'm working mm-hmm. on. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also going to include the, the visual art and the images, but yeah, the, so that's kind of more typical, I guess, the stuff that's on the website that you're looking at as far as my work goes, mm-hmm. you know, it's all right. So, uh, but it's not all of your paintings. It's oh. a sample of them. Okay. I would think not. Uh, uh, so. Um, if, if someone wanted, would see a gallery of your paintings, of Bradley Wilson's paintings, what would they see? This is the artist statement part. What would they see? <laughs> well, I think they would see work that's probably subject matter wise, more concerned with things, subjects from nature, uh, people, animals, trees, landscapes. Not really into architecture all that much, uh, even though I'll do paintings that will have buildings in them. Uh, and then like still life, I, I, I will run in the opposite direction of a still life. Uh, it just doesn't like inanimate objects just kind of sitting around for whatever reason. You know, it's, it's a legitimate subject for a lot of artists, but for me, it just doesn't interest me. So I think you would see a lot of uh, kind of nature related subject matter. I think you would see probably a lot of color. You mm-hmm. was not a lot of detail. I'm not a detailed person, uh, but a lot of kind of, I'm really interested in gesture and movement, especially as it relates to living things. Like, like even when an elephant is standing still, you know, it's like moving, you know, it's, it has yeah. slow motion to it. So like all living things have this kind of spark of life. And then I, I like, I'm interested in trying to capture that because with that not capture, you know, if you, if you fail to capture that, you end up with something, you can have all the details in place, but it would look like, like a wax museum person, you know, mm-hmm. you see, uh, you know, you can get all the details, right. But if you don't have that sense of movement or gesture and a human figure of all things, it's just not, it's going to look creepy. It'll look mm-hmm. like, so that's what I would hope they, I would hope that people would see paintings that have that kind of energy uh, okay. of kind of that spark of life, I guess, that gesture uh, that, that, that is in living things. I try, I think about that when I'm painting. That's one of the things I kind of consciously think about. Okay. That's interesting. Um, people want to put an ism word on an artist's work and based on your art, author statement and what is in your gallery both online and in the collective sense of all your pa- paintings do you follow an ism or are you doing something else you know what i mean by an ism yeah no i don't really cling to any particular kind of movements um you know tenets or you know whatever they were kind of trying to go by i kind of steal from whatever just kind of interests me in the moment. Uh, I guess ah, it's more a matter of just kind of, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, de- I definitely don't think about an ism. And as far as like having a philosophy about painting, it's just to be, uh, you know, like uncertainty is, is something is a major element of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also a major part of, of, art making and a lot of people in life and in art making figure out ways to kind of minimize uncertainty um but for me i definitely think in my life i want to minimize it 
to us to some degree. But in my artwork, I want to be completely like, I don't want to know what's going on. I want to be surprised by what I'm doing. So when I paint, which is, and I write very differently than I paint, but when I paint, I do not have an idea. I do not have a concept. I just start pushing paint around. And then whatever kind of develops intuitively out of that process is, um, is, is what, you know, is what I go with. If I, if I find or develop an image that is interesting to me or looks Again, it's that element of surprise. I want to like go, oh, wow, I didn't, I would have never thought to paint that, con- you know, from the front end. Hmm. Oh, okay. uh, so, yeah, I like to be surprised with my own work. And if I come up with, you know, if I sat down and say, okay, I'm going to paint a dog as much as I like dogs. If I have that, uh, you know, then you draw it out and then you're just kind of, it's almost like a coloring page, you know, you're just, or paint by number. You're just kind of filling it in. And again, that's, that's just for me because I a lot of painters do paint like that, and it's I'm not trying to say that's not a legitimate way to paint. It's just for me, it 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 bores me. Uh, and then I have a very even though I do commission pieces, and I just finished one fairly recently. Uh, I, it's 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 such a I don't do well with them. I mean, I get angry with at myself during the whole painting process for accepting yeah. it in the first place. Yeah. So someone in a commission, they would say, I want a painting of a certain thing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting because the last um, person who will be on right before you, when yours comes out, this podcast comes out as um, she was a portraitist and she uh, worked at the, she, she, she lived in Tuscaloosa and she really wasn't affiliated with the with the university, but her husband did. He taught there, and so she would get commissions to do portraits. And there, and so she was a realist. I mean, you know, if you're doing a portrait, there has to be. I mean, there's the style to it, but you have to make it look like the person. Realistically, it can't be too abstract or too impressionistic because people are going to say that doesn't look like me. <laughs> she and we talked about that on the on the podcast about well then we talked about also privately about people who had not been happy with um how someone in their family was portrayed you know so uh, and and it took them a while either to get used to it or they weren't they never did get used to it so um yeah now when i was looking at your paintings um one thing i saw was color and I, i'm going to say it was an unusual color like deep blue pine trees mm-hmm. am i saying that correctly am i seeing that correctly oh yeah okay. yeah there's uh lo- there's local color which is a term in art that means you paint things kind of the color you normally associate them being is like grass green and eyes blue and that kind of thing but then there's also interpretive color, and I, I, I don't really like. I, I use, I'll do in the same painting, have local color and interpretive color, or, or all interpretive color, and sometimes even all local color. So to me, it seems like um, if I want to paint something a, a certain color, I don't like whatever color I normally think of that thing as being. If I want to paint the sky green or something like that, I just go for it because. It's just a painting. It's just colored goo, you know, pushed around on a piece of fabric and uh, in layers. And, you know, it's composed, it's arranged, but there's also, you know, I don't, I'm not going to put like, and I know a lot of people like this, but I don't put these kind of arbitrary rules or whatever, like on my, Mm -hmm. my art, I just let whatever, whatever the painting needs, then that's what we go with. Ah, but how do you know when it's done? (laughs) <laughs> that's always my question. How do you know when it's done? How do you know when a book's done? I don't think books ever get done. <laughs> uh, Probably not. I've had this conversation with a lot of different artists, and it's it seems to be like one of the things we uh, that kind of is a consensus is that when you catch yourself going one more thing, just one more thing when you're painting, that that means it's time to, you know, take the set the brush down because you are in dangerous territory you're what that means is that you're having fun with what you're doing you're liking what what you've got 
and you don't want the good times to stop. So you keep saying one more thing, one more thing. And then what you end up doing, and I've done this so many times, is you push it right into this new territory of utter disappointment. You overwork it and you paint something. Something was painted with just enough, you know, just just enough information. And then you go in there and you add all this detail and it just completely, you know, takes the life out of it. Listeners, I love doing this podcast. I hope deeply that you also enjoy listening. As we bring this content free of charge, I have some requests that will help it continue. We have exceeded 2,000 listens for the 24 yes and 30 episodes. That doesn't include the YouTube listens. And none of it would have happened without Clemencia Villafuerte, our producer. I have to say that I depend on her a great deal. In some ways, that number's great because I don't do much advertising or promotion. I depend on listeners to repost on social media and for the guests to post the links on their websites. On the other hand, it's really pretty low as the podcast world goes. Really, really low. So I can't monetize it, at least not yet. That's good and bad. You all don't have to listen to random commercials about the who knows what. Yay! And I don't have any financial help. Boo. So here are the asks as the trendy people say now. I'm not sure what was wrong with the word requests, but number one, keep telling folks about this podcast. Even if it's just one that you particularly cared for, tell them about that one and they might get interested in the others. Of course, keep listening. Third, and here's the commercial part. Buy my books to offset the costs of the podcast. I don't talk about them much because I'm really terrible at marketing. I have several novels available on Amazon. You can look them up under Barbara G. Tucker or Barbara Graham Tucker, as in Graham Cracker, rolling my eyes. Or you can ask me for signed copies. The most recent, Sudden Future, by Colorful Crow Publishing, would make a great Christmas gift for a reader of any age. I will have another coming out before Christmas, Long Lost Justice. Others are Bringing Abundance Back, which I call the Southern Chicklet Book, Long Lost Family, a not-so-cozy mystery, Long Lost Promise, even less cozy. I haven't figured out how murders can be cozy. And The Unexpected Christmas Visitors, a story about refugees. All are on Kindle, too. Also, I have short Bible studies. I'm not at the GoFundMe point yet. Finally, buy the books of the folks I've interviewed here, or will. Luke Manjay of Ginseng Diggers, Becky Woolley, Ray Atkins, Katie Ballantyne, Devereaux Shivington Stebbins, Susan Kirkland, Renee Winchester, Carly Land, David Cady, Millicent Flake, Noah Knox Marshall, and Amber Nagel. You are a person interested in the artistic community of Chattanooga, Northwest Georgia, and beyond. Help them out. Thank you for listening to this commercial. So do you use acrylic or oils or or both or uh as an undergraduate and graduate student I used oil paints, but with all our dogs and we have our yeah, with all our dogs I can't have oil painting oil paints in the house because they, they dry slow. It can take weeks for oil paint to dry. Um and then we just we have our dogs. We kind of have almost like a um, a compound. We we live in a small little country house, but we have a another building out there that's my wife's sewing studio, and then we have another bigger building that's uh, a painting studio, a wood shop, and uh, a pottery studio. A lot of different art forms, and uh, and then the dogs just kind of come and go in those spaces with us. Oh, okay. 
And so uh, we kind of have to make those spaces pet friendly. Interesting. You, you don't paint a lot of dogs, though, I take it. I, paint, I like to paint dogs. Okay. There, might not, there just might not be any on the website. Really, when you had asked that all my paintings, up until uh, I started writing a few years ago, I probably would make 50 to 60 paintings a year. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't claim to be a good painter, but I will say this. I'm a fast painter. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I, the one painting I saw that I like, I really, I like a lot of them, but I really like the one, I guess it's a barn or a shed and it's next to a field. And I kind of took that the field was, there was snow on the ground, but then there was red a, a, like red rose of something and the sun was very red and I really like that one you know and I don't want to compare but it had a kind of a Van Gogh quality for me you know I kind of so I've been to the Van Gogh Museum in in Amsterdam and and it you know it kind of it, it just it just reminded me of that I like that one and I noticed also on one of your paintings online that it looked like you have really um brush strokes is that yes i do use um i use I, I paint with brushes but i also paint probably more often with palette knives yeah and, uh, with palette knives it's it's real easy to get into that that impasto that thick thick paint and kind of yeah. pile on and um so yeah it uses up a lot more paint that way uh, so you kind of figure out ways to make it where you only use kind of palette knife towards the end or otherwise you're going to just like use up all your paints on one paint. <laughs> um, but yeah, so palette knife, uh, I, I do like thick paint. I'm not a big fan of, well, with acrylic, I, I don't, you know, you can work. Acrylic is so versatile. You can use it like watercolor, you know, you can water it down a, a great deal and make it transparent. Huh. It's like a controlled stain. Or you can work with it very thickly, like uh, oil paints. And uh, I guess maybe because I just, you know, my formal training in visual art was was with oil paints. And so I've used them kind of thickly. And that's just kind of carried over when I eventually switched to mm -hmm. acrylic. And acrylic has a lot of advantages. Uh, oil paint, you have to have, like, you have to abide by technical rules of your painting or like there's this rule called fat over lean where you have to paint oil more oily layers on top of less oily layers or oh. dry at different rates and that's when you start getting the cracking crackling effect and all this kind of mm -hmm. problems and it was just one of those things that i don't want to think i can't you know i it was like i have to think about chemistry now when i'm painting and i just couldn't do that with acrylic you can just paint whatever you want you know there's mm. really as long as it's not on an oily surface, acrylic paint will, it will last through a nuclear holocaust. So, yeah. And, you know, that's kind of like um, <laughs> trying to make a connection. It's like people just think, oh, you paint. But the, the, the tools and the texture and the medium has a certain influence or even control over what you can do, you know, and it's, it's like a poet. If a poet says, I'm going to write up oh, a sonnet, okay, or one of those more obscure types of poems that I don't know all of their names, um, a Tarantella or something like that. I think, I think that's maybe a kind of poem, I be wrong, <laughs> that they agree to abide by certain rules, you know, and they can't break the rule. Once they say they're going to do a sonnet, it has to be a certain way. And that always amazes me how people can, um, you know, that's why I write novels because there, there, there aren't as many rules. <laughs> you know, you've got to have some rules, but you don't have to be constrained to just having 10 syllables in a, in a line, 14 lines, if you want to say more. But those who do it are, you know, they do it brilliantly and you, you, you know, whatever. Um, so I, I'd like to explain here to those who are listening why I happen to know Bradley. Okay, he teaches art appreciation at Dalton State College, and and that is 
in my department, the Department of Communication, Performing Arts, and Foreign Language. He also teaches art at Lee University. What do you, what do you teach there? Painting? Uh, I teach visual. I've taught a lot of things there. I teach visual art, studio art courses, as well as art history courses. Okay. Um, and uh, so as far as the studio classes, I, I've taught beginning, like the, the, the low-level painting classes. I've taught the upper-level uh, drawing, uh, printmaking, and watercolor. And I'm not a watercolorist, really, but I taught it and hopefully did a decent job at it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's a small department and you kind of go where you're needed. Um, and I'm happy to do it. The students there are, you know, they're great students, just like the students at Dalton state are great. Um, that's probably the best thing of this best part of any teaching job is getting to work with the students. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in that way, if you have small classes and there are people that have you know, very similar interests that, that you would have. It's almost like a mentor uh, apprenticeship kind of a deal like that. So how do you go about teaching someone to paint? I, you also teach, as you mentioned, at the John, is it John C. Campbell or John Campbell? John's, well, I think the official name is John C. Campbell Folk School. Okay. In, in Brasstown, North Carolina? Yes. Okay. And um, how did you get hooked up with them? I had learned about the school and this is when I was living in Alabama and my wife actually wanted to go there to take a class. And so we somehow found a, I think she, my wife or I, we found a catalog. Uh, and then that's, there was one sitting around somewhere and that's, I think how we learned about it. And then my wife went and took a class. And when she came back, she said, you need to teach at this place. So, uh, I went and took a class just to kind of check out the scene, you know, see what it was. And then uh, as soon as I got back, I put together a class proposal or a workshop proposal for one week class and sent it in, as, you know, along with all the things you have to submit with it, like a resume and mm -hmm. uh, images. And I sent it examples of student work too, just to kind of, I wanted to make sure I had enough stuff there that they could see that, uh, you know, if you send any incomplete stuff or just stuff that's kind of halfway done, it just it kind of appears that you don't really want to teach there that much. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to have a good, strong initial presentation to to turn in. And then so I, I sent that in and then they, you know, they booked that back then anyways, they would book two years in advance. So I finally taught there in 2012. And then after that, I was going four times a year, four weeks a year, uh, not consecutively, but like throughout the year, a week long class. Um, and, and that, that went for years and I, that was such a fun, you know, it's just like going to camp for a week and yeah, I was teaching, I was working, but you know, it was, it was fun work. Uh, but now I've really, I only go next year. I'm only going one, one week. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of hard um, to, with our dog situation, it's, it's really yeah. hard when one of my wife or I are gone because it puts in the entire load of the responsibility for taking care of the dogs on that one person. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's, you know, when you're getting up in the morning and you're having to get up and go to work and get everything together and get everybody fed, uh, it's just having two people doing that, it just works so much better than one person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you start to teach a class of painting, I mean, when you actually do first, is it about teaching people to see a certain way? Wow, that's a really good question. So what I try to do is you make an objective that's very kind of clear for them to understand. So you say, we're going to draw a portrait using only shapes, lines and shapes. We're not going to use color. We're not going to use everything. We're not going to use, um, you know, we're not going to really focus on texture or anything like that. Just lines and shapes. And then let me read back up here. So when it's a total beginner student, it's, it's, a, it's a balanced thing because you want them to enjoy the process. 
there's so many ways that beginners can get frustrated Mm -hmm. and they're going to make, you kind of have to tell them from the get go, don't even like keep, have it in your mind that you're going to make a great painting because, and you might make a great painting, but if you're beginning, you have a lot of lessons to learn. And that's what this week is about, or this class is about is just, you know, basically we're here to make some mistakes. Uh, and so if you're making a bunch of paintings with mistakes in them, you're, you're, you're doing it the right way. And so if you can get students to be willing to get to that point where they will let themselves make a bad painting, let, basically let them take the risk of the, that comes with creating, because again, kind of going back to that uncertainty thing, it, it's the creative process. I, I don't see how. I don't see how you can have a creative process without there being a large degree of uncertainty in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I guess that's what it, so it's not really like a formal thing. So I'm not like necessarily like, you know, you do teach about line shapes and colors and mm-hmm. uh, all that kind of stuff. And that's all very, very important, but really it's kind of more important to get them into the right frame of thinking because uh, that's they're going to be their that's what their success is going to hinge on is if they'll let themselves make those mistakes and enjoy the process because if they just get frustrated if they can't let go of that uh, need to make something that they feel like is worthy and good yeah yes and they probably have gotten ideas over time of what is worthy and good oh from wherever and so they're unconsciously trying to emulate that you think to a certain extent oh there's yes oh yes a lot of outside factors you know uh, sometimes people's spouses will put pressures you know i've had students that were taking painting classes and that the spouses would say why are you painting like that it just looks like trash you need to be painting this way or something it's like really you know i guess people are different but i think you've got to it's very important to learn how to shut people out even like you know even spouses and family members uh at least as far as like them having any influence on your creative yeah practices Mm -hmm. because some people just will never uh, that sounds kind of elitist not that they can't get it or won't get it it's just they're they're just not on that path, you know. They're just not on that um, that path of, of of going through, you know, what it what it takes to actually learn how to paint. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, okay. So, I was going to ask you about, you know, since this is a podcast about creativity, how do you define creativity? And I think you kind of already have, in the sense of it. It's uh, being willing to deal with uncertainty in your product. I think that's really interesting um, in, in how to do it. And yeah, you know, I'm in, I'm in writer's groups and, sometimes, and of course we, we have to have other people read our things to critique it. And sometimes they're, they're absolutely spot on. And other times I'm like, you go write your own book. This is my book. <laughs> you know, you're wanting this book to be in your image, but this book is in my image or my, I don't say that, that's sounds theological, but it sounds, it, it, it's my story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I had someone recently say they wanted me to do more with a certain character, but that character was not a major character. And I, I could see their point, but I didn't want that character to take over the whole story, you know, because it really wasn't what the story was about. So, which, which brings us to the next or thing I wanted to talk to you about is you said that you are publishing your first novel. Talk about that. Yeah, I'm kind of really nervous about it. Um, so I, I started writing in earnest at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you and a lot of people <laughs> yeah because I, I needed something i wanted something to do i mean i was still painting but i i guess i was looking for like maybe an, another way to kind of 
play around, you know? And so I tried uh, doing some wire sculpting and a few other kind of art things. And then I ended up taking uh, like a basic online writing course. And I thought, okay, this is it. And then plus, plus I had the foolish notion too that, oh, this will be good because writing's real. It doesn't cost anything to do this, but it costs a lot. Yeah. So I was, I decided to go back to graduate school and get a master's in creative writing. Not that you need a degree to write. You definitely don't. But I was also thinking in terms of getting that degree would qualify me where I could teach like English composition or even remedial uh, reading or writing. Just I like teaching and I'm fine. You know, uh, I wouldn't mind at all working with, you know, students that were in remedial classes. And, you know, I took I had to take remedial math. So getting that degree would kind of broaden my employability. Uh, there's just not a lot of art jobs around. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was that, but then I also wanted the good stuff. You know, I wanted the content of, uh, of the learning that, you know, that would I could get from a program and from a, you know, formal writing graduate program. And so uh, I took in my second semester, I took a class called Novel. Uh, well, it was a novel class and we had to write. And so I wrote that first draft and it ended up, I think, being around 70,000 words. Wow. That's a lot for first time. Well, I had written I had written a novella before. Mm-hmm. It was a 20 or 30. That was 30,000. Yeah, 30,000 yeah. words. I had written some short stories, but basically it was just to me, it's I don't know. One thing I'm I'm pretty disciplined about waking up and getting busy in the morning Um, Mm -hmm. so i can you know i can sit down and even and i get up pretty early too i'm usually up between five and five thirty so i'll get up and it's just the easiest thing i I can just sit there i can just start writing you know um and it's just then the next thing i know my wife is getting up and you know the dogs Mm -hmm. are and you know even and even if I write nothing else that day, I've had an hour of writing, you know, mm-hmm. so I just kind of kept a regular um, writing schedule. And then I finished the first draft and then I sat on it for a few weeks and then I started rewriting it. The first, of course, so the first, first draft was just this hot plate of garbage. But, uh, you know, I had some with each draft I would involve maybe some other people. I had a friend read it. Um and give me notes who in, he was a he, he's an independent author too so he gave me some really good notes and then when i gave it to my copy editor she was fantastic she's a she lives in um, the pacific northwest and she just oh. she just made the story i mean she just had these suggestions that were that really are you know once i implemented those suggestions it's really improved the story mm-hmm. and so and it uh, so I don't know. I'm kind of like telling you this in the most boring and dull possible way, but it was, it was a fun experience. Um, and I decided to write a story that was in the genre of what I usually read in. Uh, I usually read mysteries or thrillers. And so I thought that's what I wanted to do. So the story is a, a whodunit, but it's also kind of a why done it. And mm-hmm. it, has it's kind of set in the it's set well the actual setting is in uh helen georgia mm-hmm. and the two main characters are artists themselves and then there's an, an 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 art history kind of component to the story people so, like that yeah but it's basically it's got a dead body and people trying to figure out who who dead bodied it okay well let me let me stack back did you finish your mfa yeah. Okay. It's not an MFA. It's just an MA. But oh, okay. I will. I will be finished at the end of the semester. In fact, okay. Yesterday, I turned in the rough draft. When I say rough draft. It was uh, we had to turn in our capstone project, which mine was a hundred and three something pages. And uh, then we're going to get feedback on it and give it. You know, they'll give it back to us to clean up and make changes. And so, what really, an institution is this? It's Tiffin University, which is in Ohio. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's one of those 
I think it started out as a like a Catholic liberal arts school, and now it's uh, it's a private school, but they have an online graduate program in creative writing that would oh okay was affordable and worked for me, and um, the professors have been outstanding. And then working with the other students, you know, because it's all online, but there's they've designed it so that there's a lot of interacting, <laughs> yeah, which I think is good for the program. Sometimes like. Sometimes it can, as a student, it can be a grind to go on there and just like answer. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think it's been a very good program. I feel like I've gotten a great education in writing because I feel like I've learned just enough to know that I know almost nothing about writing, that there's just well, so much more to learn. Well, what's the name? What's the title of your book and where is it available and when is it available? Title of the book is Little Blue Horses. Yeah, we'll be, I'm publishing it uh, through Amazon. So it'll be available on Amazon as a hard copy book uh, as well or as a physical paperback and digital book. Okay. And when? No, I'm shooting for February 2nd. Okay. No, that's not actually shooting for. That's actually a hard. That's, that's when it's going to happen unless something unforeseen happens. All right. Well, that's interesting that you went and got more education for um, for that. I'm I'm amazed. I'm I'm impressed because, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of work. And you you wanted to learn what you were really doing. You didn't just say, "Oh, writing a book is easy." And <laughs> no, I pretty much knew that uh, just with painting and I've just as being a teacher. You know, you learn that nothing that nothing is ever as simple as. You know, yeah. I don't know. I can't speak about every subject, but when it comes to creating, it's almost all it's 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 not it's a complicated complex kind of thing you're doing. Yeah. Okay, so Brad is our next to the last guest for this season, which has spanned four months and included two filmmakers, two visual artists, two musicians, three novelists, and an anthropologist who works with Narrative 4 and my producer, Clemencia. Next time around, I will go solo to share my vision and thoughts on writing and the future podcasting and the next adventure in my life, grandmotherhood. <laughs> See you then, even though it's a podcast. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>